some things really don't need to change. Uh, one of those is the floor of a college and professional basketball uh, court. It's made out of hard maple. Uh, the, the floor has remained unchanged since the game was invented back in 1891. Uh, according to an article in The Guardian, maple flooring is harder than red oak. I, I can't verify that. I'm not a... I'm not a woodworker, but maple flooring is harder than red oak, black walnut, or cherry flooring, and its tight grain uh, makes it easier to clean and maintain. The maple floor is also, also has turned out to be the perfect surface for dribbling a basketball. Uh, and it's really no surprise then that uh, The Guardian then reports that the NCAA said that the official courts of the men's and women's Final Four uh, is made of 500 trees of northern maple carefully harvested. Uh, from the Two-Hearted River Forest Reserve in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Uh, the NBA followed suit. Uh, all of the courts, except for one professional team, use the, uh, the, maple, the hard maple. Uh, any of you basketball fans, can you tell me what court does not? Johnny? Nobody? The Boston Celtics. You look at their court, and it's a little bit different. Uh, they actually use um, something called a red oak parquet floor. Um, hard maple offers the most consistent uh, playing surface. It also provides the 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 the, uh, the bounce enough, the shock resistance um, to uh, uh, to help the ball um, in its in its bouncing, and also to uh, provide less fatigue on players' knees running back and forth. On the, uh, on the court. It's a perfect example of if it ain't broke, then don't fix it. And it's worked very well for 130 years, so why in the world would we want to change it now? Some things really don't need to be changed, but there are some things that do need to change, and that's what Paul addresses here in our text this morning. For the past four months, we've been working through uh, a change in our church. We've been looking at rediscovering who we are uh, in Christ as a church and also what God wants us to be as a church. And that requires a little bit of a remodel. And so our text this morning, uh, Paul makes the argument that in order for our church to be remodeled spiritually, it needs to be filled with members who have been fundamentally changed by the power of the gospel and who are actively working toward change. Spiritual growth that finds itself working out in every single aspect of our lives. So here's where we're headed today. To build up the church and to give glory to God, we need to take a look at ourselves individually um, and, uh, and actively work toward biblical growth in our personal lives. We need to know the, what parts of ourselves we need to, to get rid of and to eliminate. Uh, and we need to recognize the virtues that we either have and need to strengthen or the virtues that we need to have and, and gain. So uh, we're going to dig in here today and find that there are three aspects that are crucial uh, for growing biblically in Christ today. And the first one is, is that we need to shed who we were. We need to shed who we were. 
Starting in verse 17, Paul exposes really the Christian paradox. Uh, when we come to know Christ as, as personal Savior, we're radically changed from the inside out. We are a new person. We're not who we used to be. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's absolutely true. Who you were is gone. That person is, is, is no longer who you are. You are forgiven and free, and you're no longer in, in bondage to sin. But yet, every single one of us still feels the, uh, the residue of sin that is left over. Some of us are still struggling with uh, those, those same sins that we struggled with before we came to know Christ. Some of us have discovered new sin that we didn't know we had and, and uh, actively are fighting against it or maybe not fighting against it right now. And how can this be? If we are a new creation in Christ, then how can sin still dwell in us? How can we still hurt others through our sin and be hurt by the sin of other Christians? And the answer to that is both painful and encouraging. At the moment of, of conversion, when we trusted in Christ alone, we were made righteous in God's sight. Now that does not mean that we were righteous because of our own actions and our own selves of, of who we are. It's not that we're perfect, we're far from it, but rather the Bible tells us that when we come to faith, when we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are given the righteousness of Christ. He takes our unrighteousness upon himself and he gives us his righteousness as a, as a robe or, or a cloak and covers it with us. So then when we meet God one day, um, he will not look upon our own personal righteousness. If he were to do that, you and I would immediately deserve hell. But rather, when he looks at us, he sees that we're, that we're clothed in Christ and his righteousness, and he says, welcome home. That's what it means to be justified. It's a legal term, that when we trusted in Christ, the charges are dropped and we're free to go. We would say then, positionally, we are righteous and justified before God because of who Christ is and what he has done. But though we're positionally justified, in our experience, we still sin, don't we? We're working out the effects of the gospel into our personal lives. In Christ, we're no longer in bondage to those things that, that held onto us so tightly, but, and, and sin no longer controls us. It still affects us, though, doesn't it? And it still influences us. But we have a choice in the matter now, whereas before we, we didn't. And now that we're God's chosen people, he wants to work out the, uh, the effects of the gospel and help us to become who we're supposed to be. So Paul put it in uh, this way in, in verse 1 of this very chapter. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Remember last week we looked at this idea that uh, the walk here is a, is a metaphor for how you go about life. 
He's urging us to consistently walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. And it has way more implications than the thought life. It's not just changing your worldview, but rather it's having the gospel permeate every single aspect within our lives. And one of the ways that we do this is by changing our walking route. He writes in verse 17 now, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So Paul here is clearly saying that if we're in Christ, then a change of course is necessary. He starts at the level of the mind. How do the Gentiles or or the non-Christians walk? He says, in the futility of their minds. Futility here meaning pointless or empty. Their their thoughts are, are void and their intentions have no substance. They're not beneficial spiritually. He goes on to say that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is due uh, to their hardness of heart. The word darkened is also, uh, you could also use the word blind. And it's this idea that they're unable to see truth and they're walking through a dark room where they don't know where objects are and they're bumping their knees and, and, and hurting themselves, not even maybe realizing that they are doing so. And here it says that it's alienation from God, which is even worse. It means to be a stranger of God, to not know him. And he goes on to write that the reason for this is because they are ignorant, which means they don't have a clue. They don't know, nor do they want to have a clue. Unbelievers are happy in their ignorance, and Paul writes that this is due to the hardness of heart. Now, biblically speaking, the heart is the epicenter of of the self. It's where all your thoughts and your intentions and your desires and and who you are uh, comes out of. And so here, we see that sin has a deadening effect on the heart. Whereas a heart with the way that it was created to be should be uh, repulsed by sin and tender toward God in repentance. But yet as it is, sin has hardened our heart so that we are tender toward sin and we're repulsed by God. Verse 19 tells us that the result of this ignorance then and the hardness of heart Uh, toward God is because they have become callous. Now, I I was 11 years old when I first started taking guitar lessons, and I remember I was using an acoustic somewhat like this, not this nice, but it was an acoustic just like that, steel strings. And as I was learning my chord shapes and the notes, I found that right away my fingertips were really, really sore. And I couldn't play for very long because my fingers were very tender. But the more and more I played and played and played, I developed calluses on my finger so that it no longer hurts now when I play uh, the guitar. And Paul is saying that that is what it's like spiritually. 
Sin leaves a mark at first, and maybe it hurts a little bit. But as we continue in that way and go in that path, it starts to make a callus, and you no longer feel the, 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 the pinch of sin upon our hearts. They become callous. They're not sensitive to God. That's how unbelievers, Paul describes here, live. They're so callous that verse 19 says that they have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and practice of every kind of impurity. Think about the progression there. The, the Gentiles, the world without Christ is blind, alienated, ignorant, hard, callous toward God. They will condone anything and everything in order to suit their desires. And we're seeing the fruit of this today in this world, aren't we? I mean, the sexual boundaries and anything that resembles a basic morality are basically gone in our culture. When we've gotten to the point where as a society, we're comfortable with chemically castrating children and cutting off the breasts of perfectly healthy girls that think that they're boys, shows us how far we have come in a society that is callous against God's image of male and female. It's this mindset, one that ignores God um, in both the big things and the small things now, that Paul says we have to take off. That's who we were. And we have to take it off because it's not part of us anymore. This isn't who we are. It wasn't how, uh, it, it was maybe how we operated before Christ, but now God and his ways and his glory must be the starting point in every single thing that we do. There is nothing anywhere in your life that Christ does not say to you, you know what, you go ahead and have that. You be sovereign over that. There's nothing in your life that Christ says that to he wants all of us. It is all his. And so therefore, we must shed that old person. But second, we have to then be who we are. We have to be who we are. Verse 20 through 24, Paul provides a contrasting statement. If we're to walk like the, the world walks, uh, if we're not to walk that way, then how are we to walk? Well, let's start backwards a little bit. Let's look in verse uh, 23. It says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if you uh, consult commentaries on this letter to the Ephesians, there's a lot of debate up in the ivory towers over in the uh, academic world on what it means to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It, it zeroes in on what's the idea of the spirit here. Is it talking about our spirit or is it talking about the Holy Spirit? Now, I am inclined to think that the ESV should not have uh, put a lowercase s. I'm inclined to think that this is referring to the Holy Spirit himself. And one of the reasons why I think that is the correct understanding is there's a, passive, there's a passiveness to it. The, uh, it's worded very uh, closely with what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In both cases, this renewal is something that has to happen to us. 
It's not something that we could do. We don't have the ability to renew our minds. Rather, this has to be something that is done to us. We are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit as we uh, study God's word and obey it and, and live it out. When we are immersed in God's word and obedience, the Holy Spirit creates a, a fertile ground to plant seeds and to watch them grow. And so gradually, over time, our worldview changes and it aligns more with God's worldview and it, it helps us be more obedient and more in love with God and his will and his way. And so though we're not able to renew our minds on our own, there is something that Paul says that we not only can do, but that we must do. Verses 17 through 19, he laid out the root of unbe the unbelieving mindset, the mindset that we all once had, the mindset that keeps creeping back and wants to take dominion over our hearts and our minds once again. But in verse 22, he gives us an illustration of what to do. He says, put, on, put off the old self, literally take off the old man. It's an illustration of disrobing. It would be like, uh, on a, on, it's hard to imagine now, but on a really hot summer day, say you're working hours outside in the garden or you're doing landscaping and you're sweaty and you're, you're, you're filthy and you, you walk in home, your, your house and, and maybe, maybe you even smell quite a bit and, uh, and um, hopefully you don't go and sit on the couch and watch TV for a couple hours when you're on that, in that state because... And if you do, I, I, I'll come over for the Super Bowl, but I might stand and watch. Um, maybe, uh, maybe you get a glass of water, but the best thing that you can do is get out of those clothes. Go take a cold shower. And then put something clean on. Paul is saying that our old way of life is getting absolutely morally filthy and not caring about it. It's like walking in after that and not caring if you're smelly, stinky, uh, dirty, sweaty, and then you still decide to go to the formal event that you have scheduled that night in that same garb. We need to take that off and put something uh, else on. He says uh, that we are to, to take off that old person, to throw it away. In other places, he gets more graphic and more violent. He says that that old person, we should kill it. To kill it. Verse 22 goes on, because it belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That person is dead and gone. It was corrupt. It lied to you. It made promises that it could not keep. Get rid of it. Throw it away. Burn it. But in verse 20, he says, that's not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. See, the old way is rooted in deceit and lies. But Jesus here is truth embodied. There's no falsehood in him. 
Everything that is good and honest and pure and lovely and fair and right is in him. And through him and in him, we are made new. And so now in verse 24, uh, he tells us to become who we are in him. He says, put on the new self, created after the likeness uh, of God in true righteousness and holiness. So just as we are to toss out that old outfit, we aren't just to be without clothes. We are to put something else on. We're to put on the new self. It's already ours, folks. It's in the closet. We need to grab it and we need to, we need to put it on. However, because, uh, as Christians, we, yes, affirm that every human is made in the image of God. However, because of sin, that image has been marred. It's, it's, it's disfigured. And so... When we trust in Christ and take off that old man and, and put on the new self, that image that was marred starts to reverse. It starts to take shape again to who we were created to be. In Christ, when we put on that new self, we're putting on the humanity that we were meant to have. We're becoming the people who we were created to be. And this isn't something that happens overnight. This takes time. This takes effort. Sometimes this takes um, tears and pain. But when we put off that old person and put on the new person in Christ, we're becoming who we are, who we are meant to be. And so third... Not only do we put on the new self, but we also have to live out that new person. So, third, we need to live out who you are. Live out what you are. So, we have some propositional ideas here that are the foundation for biblical growth, right? We have shedding who we, who we were in the world, putting on who we are in Christ, and it sounds good, and it's, it's simple, it's, it's memorable. I bet if I could ask you next week, you know, what we talked about, you could easily say, putting off the old and putting on the new. It's, it's pretty simple. However, this is really, really hard in practice. In verses uh, chapter 4, 25 through 5, 2, Paul lays out the practical examples of, of how to put on the new self. It's not exhaustive by any means. It's certainly just a, a starting place. But well, find out that the neglect of these things is what destroys churches. It's what destroys marriages. It's what destroys relationships and, and individuals. I'm going to start at the end again in, in chapter 5 uh, because that gives us a summary of what putting on the new self is all about. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, how many of you, um, when you were kids, remember being annoyed by the copycat game by a sibling? Yeah, I hear some laughs because you know what it's like. It's when a sibling or a friend or maybe that kid down the street that you didn't really want to play with in the first point. They come, and they copy everything you say right after you say it. Hi, hi, stop copying me. Stop copying me. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Remember, we were so annoyed when those kind of things happened. And it, obviously, the point was to annoy the other person, and, and certainly message received. However, 
Paul points out here that he, that God is permitting us to be his copycat. He is permitting us to act like him, to talk like him, to be like him. He doesn't get annoyed by it. He welcomes it. He encourages it. He demands it as a command. He wants us to love like he loves. He wants to sacrifice like he sacrifices. Why? Because in, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says that we are his beloved children, and he wants there to be a family resemblance. If we are his children, we should be like him. And so what are these resemblances? Paul gives us a few, starting back in, in 425. He says, therefore, putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If we are people of God, we must, must, must dwell in truth. Living in falsehood belongs to the old self, and every single one of us can probably find a, a few examples from our personal lives that show the destructiveness of, of deceit and, and lying. Perhaps it is uh, dishonesty and withholding information. Or maybe it's uh, straight-up deceit. If we're to put on the new self, it's time to put on truth. For some of us, that means that we need to stop exaggerating. We need to stop making things look and seem bigger than they actually are. For some of us, it means it's time to confess that whatever you're hiding isn't something that you can just stop and put behind you. It's time to come clean. It's time to let it out. If you are deliberately hiding something or deceiving uh, yourself, you need to put it away. You need to let it out. Your lying and deceit is ruining your soul, maybe your marriage, other relationships, maybe even the church. We are members of one another. It's time to let it out and begin the healing. Verse 26, uh, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Notice here that Paul does not say, don't be angry. He didn't say that. But he says, be angry, but don't sin. So the question is, how are we going to process our anger? Anger is one of those emotions that, that can get the, the best of us and lead us to do things that we regret. It's, it's really easy to let our anger lead us into sin. Perhaps maybe it's physical violence for some of us. Perhaps it's a sharp, a sharp tongue that we're so quick to hurt someone with. Whatever the case, Paul tells us that anger, number one, has to be justified. Number two, has to be controlled. And third, has to be dealt with quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because anger has a way of festering in our souls, producing gangrene and, and, and killing off things that ought to be tender. It quickly rots good intentions and thoughts. Unresolved anger can very quickly lead to uh, bitterness and resentment and even uh, contempt. 
Um, one, I was reading a, a, a study on marriage uh, a couple weeks back, and they had said that they can accurately pinpoint the number one predictor of divorce in a relationship. It's not money. It's not necessarily infidelity. It's contempt and resentment. That when it gets to that point, that is the number one factor that a marriage might be going down uh, in places that it shouldn't go. Uh, shouldn't go. And so you can see here uh, why Paul uh, puts it. Because the devil can easily get his foot in that door when it wants to be closed. Sneak in and lead us to places that we don't want to go. We need to put away that anger. Are you sensing how hard it is to put on the new person? Thank goodness we have the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. Let me give just a few more, and then I, then I need to be done here. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The one who steals, it doesn't matter if they're, a, if they're a klepto or whether they have some perceived justification to do uh, whatever it is that they're doing. It is evident that theft is a lack of trust that God will provide for their needs. And so in putting on the new self, uh, it is submitting to God and it is trusting that in all things of life, God is going to take care of us, and abundantly so that we can even share in our excess with other people. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I don't think this is talking about swear words, but I do think that you can probably put that in the, uh, in the category here. Rather, Paul is talking about corrupting talk in the same way that he did in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, um, encourage one another and build one another up. And so what, what uh, corrupting talk does is it tears people down. It corrupts them. It's discouraging. It pulls people's hearts from the joy that is in Christ. Um, some people can, well not can, are just really good about being negative. That they can find a problem with the sun shining and then the next day when it's cloudy, there's a problem because it's cloudy. That they're negative about everything. So this one is very hard for some of us to put on. But the Holy Spirit has given us the tools. We need to put it on. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So the question that, that, that comes with this is, is there dry rot in your soul or in a relationship because you need to forgive someone? Or because you need to go and ask for forgiveness of someone. Why not put on the new self and forgive? Why not put on the new self and go to that individual? Uh, this paragraph can be absolutely overwhelming. It's so much so that, uh, uh, especially if we've been living in the old self, we know that we've been living in the old self if we maybe feel a sting with some of the things that were said here. 
and it can feel legalistic and impossible. But remember that chapter 4, you know, spoiler alert, comes right after chapters 1 through 3. And in chapters 1 through 3 is the foundation of our salvation. We looked at this back in the fall. Um, We have been saved, not because of anything that we have done, not because of our looks or because of the way that we talk or because of any good deed we've ever done or because of the family uh, of origin that we come from. Rather, we have been saved because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Chapter 2, he took our dead hearts and gave them life, compelling us to trust him and to love him. It is his grace that we are saved by. And um, because of that, this list is not a finger in the chest saying, you got to get your act together. But rather, it is a gracious phrase of saying, you've already been made new in Christ. Now it's just time to live like him. It's already yours. So become who you are. And yeah, it takes time. Yes, it takes work. But we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit that God says to us in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, I believe, verses 12 through 14, that we've been sealed by, we have the Holy Spirit who empowers us as individuals and as a church to encourage each other. And so together, we can be a community that pursues growth. Where we are weak, one other person is strong. We can build each other up. Together we can become who we are in Christ. And so if we want to become the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be, and then we need to take a walk together. We need to walk away from who we were, finally and fully. And we need to walk in the way that we were called in a manner worthy of the Lord, in Christ-likeness. Friends, it is time to become who we are. Let's do that together.